He was homeless, illiterate, and struggling with addictions to drugs and booze. If you passed him on the street, you would not think for a moment that one day he would become the mayor of the sixth largest city in Ontario. I don't think he would either. In fact, Dan Carter was more certain of an early death rather than politics. My guest is His Worship, Dan Carter, mayor of Oshawa, Ontario, from rock bottom right to the top, right now on the Mental Health Podcast. I'm Kevin Frankish from Ontario Shore Centre for Mental Health Sciences. This is the second of three episodes we're bringing you on addiction. We've actually compiled information and resources on addiction and breaking free at ontarioshores.ca slash info. I invite you to check it out. Dan Carter has to be the quintessential recovery story. He is also now in the unique position of being a politician who's been there, done that, when it comes to addiction and homelessness. Hello, Dan. It's great to see you, Kevin, by the way, and thank you for the opportunity to spend some time with you today. Well, tell me what addiction looked like for you. So I always like to say um, by the end of my addiction, I was mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, and spiritually broken. I think that um, my addiction started at a very early age because I think it gave me all the things that I was desperately seeking, which was confidence, self-esteem, this kind of image of being a great athlete and a great person and you know, uh, really overcompensating for a lot of the shortcomings I had in my life. And I think alcohol gave me this false sense of who I uh, ha- was and who I could be. Unfortunately, as um, being an addict, um, it, it starts off um, not too bad, but it gets really bad over time. And I, over that 17-year period, like I say, I was mentally, emotionally, physically, and financially and spiritually broken to the point that you find yourself in very dark places. You find yourself battling not only addiction, but uh, severe depression. And you end up doing things that are are not great. And you, um, especially, you know, to people around you um, that you care and love so much, um, they are usually the ones that are the direct recipient of your bad behavior. And so, you know, I always say to people, the opportunity I have today is because of forgiveness, redemption, recovery, and um, the opportunity to truly be able to create new pathways forward, but take responsibility for my actions. So it's, um, you know, for addicts like myself, it's it's a real struggle. It's, um, you know, once you're in the grips of addiction, uh, it's very difficult to get out of. Uh, But if you can get into the right programs with the right kind of um, investment, I think what happens is you've got a greater um, rate of success. And I'm a great believer that 21 days or 28 days is not long enough. I think the reality, most of us come to addiction um, with, uh, you know, 20 or 25 or 30 years of brokenness. And we need to deal with that because addiction, you know, our substance abuse is to be able to cope with uh, our life issues and the brokenness that we come from. And so dealing with the brokenness is so important. How many times did you say to yourself, enough, I'm not going to do this anymore? Uh, I think uh, the most shameful, darkest period of my life. Um, I think the anxiety every morning or every day, understanding that I needed to feed my habit and that physical uh, feeling of uh, just being sick. And I think that that was one of the worst things that that i experienced on a daily basis 
the shakes, the sweats, the uh, paranoia, the anxiety, all of those things that go with addiction. And I think um, for me, I've I've never uh, never uh, lost touch of that. And I think that that's one of the things that keeps me reminds me that sobriety is so important is because I don't think I'd be able to survive if I ever went back um, just based upon uh, my personality. And now with the types of drugs and, and that are out there, I think it would absolutely destroy me. But that really, really darkness that just surrounds you um, is pretty horrific. And there's not many, you know, in the early days of addiction, I think there's more joyous times than, than dark times. And I think as you go through addiction, I think the dark times um, are a lot more uh, present uh, in your life. And I think that um, that's the severity of your illness. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Honestly, do you think you would be here right now talking with me if you hadn't kicked the alcohol and the drugs? Oh, God, uh, uh, not, a, not a chance that I would be here today. Um, that's why I would say, you know, those split moments, especially as us, as individuals that are suffering with addiction, making sure the access to care is available immediately because these moments um, come periodically and on out of out of nowhere. And if we can have the right services at the right time to be able to get people into the right treatment, I think, Kevin, to be absolutely honest, I think that plays a vital role. I know that that moment, it, you know, um, I could have changed my mind, you know, in a heartbeat. Um, but that moment existed, um, and I was fortunate enough that I had the right person at the right time help me, but also that I had the awareness that this was a serious moment in my life and I had to do something. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that if I didn't find sobriety on that day, you and I wouldn't be speaking today. How did you find sobriety? Was help readily available? No, matter of fact, uh, what was available in Canada was 21 or 28 day programs. And my sickness and, and the severity of my illness was pretty severe. My sister was able to have a contact um, that worked with uh, sending Canadian patients to the United States for long term care. And I was fortunate enough that my sister was able to navigate the system and also be able to pay for the system so that I could I could go to Los Angeles, California to get treatment. And that treatment uh, both inpatient and outpatient lasted almost a year. And I always say that um, it was the saving grace because, you know, the, the first three months was really just getting rid of the alcohol and drugs and the shakes and uh, learning how to eat solid food again, by the way, um, because, of course, you know, your system is so, so battered and bruised. Um, and then the rest of the time was really talking about the brokenness that I brought in, how I felt and having these candid confidential trusted conversations that i never had with my brothers or sisters my mother or father or my friends they didn't know the amount of darkness that i was carrying in my own interpretation of the events happened in my life and i think you know you, you get these people that say well you know just brush it off you know pull up your bootstraps and you know for some people i guess they're able to do that and for others there's an emotional toll that is played when you're beaten and bullied in school, when you lose your parents, when you're raped, when you're seven, when you lose a sibling, when you're 13. I mean, all of these things add up and carrying them in a knapsack for 30 years uh, really plays, um, you know, uh, really destroys you. And if you don't get the chance to be able to speak to it, I still remember Kevin sitting down with one of the counselors 
And it was the first time that I ever talked about being raped as a seven-year-old. And I was so ashamed. Now, this I'm 31 years old. I finally have this conversation in this safe environment. But actually being able to speak about it and actually talking about, you know, what that experience was and what I remember about it and why I think it happened and all these different things. I mean, imagine carrying that for such a long period of time as such a secret, that heaviness just adds to it. So, um, you know, I just, I'm a great believer that addiction, we don't get there in overnight and, and we can't get rid of it overnight. We have to understand that addiction um, in many circumstances is a coping mechanism um, and it's about the life brokenness that we bring to it. And I'm convinced that 21 and 28 day programs are not the pathway we should be seeking. So from what I'm hearing from you, there's two important treatment times in the life of an addict. One, treatment for your addiction, but two, treatment before you become an addict. You were carrying around a lot of baggage. How did the system fail you? You know, I, I don't know if I agree with that statement because I, I with with my addiction, it it I don't know if if there was a time that I finally went, oh, you know, I'm an addict kind of thing. I think it was day in and day out of finding something that helped me cope with all of the things that I wasn't. And all that did was, was help me get, even through the chaos that happens, there's, there's still this, this false sense that I, you know, that, that I'm okay. Um, But those that are, you know, I guess there's a couple of things. One is, is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that with, uh, addiction, many of us, and I'm not speaking of all, and I can only speak of my journey, that I, I think genetics has something to do with it. Um, I also think circumstances have something to do with it. I think the awareness of understanding what I, what our family history is, if there are alcohol or drug um, uh, tendencies in the family, I'm being aware of it, and then just being consciously aware of it, I think helps. But those individuals that go from uh, it as a coping mechanism to a, to an addiction, believe it or not, um, it's, you know, you cross that line and now you're into chaos. And I think that the problem being is once you're in chaos, all, all you're trying to do is manage chaos and you're lying and you're cheating and you're, and you're doing all these things to be able to, to kind of make it through the next day. And denial is a big part of it. I, I just, I don't know if there's ever that time that I that I and I'm speaking on my behalf where I crossed that line and I went, oh my God, I've gone from uh, somebody that is a coping mechanism to an addict. Um, I don't think I said it out loud, but I think that you know deep down I probably realized that I had a real problem. And I think the real problem started when I started. There started you're losing jobs, you're losing friends, um, you don't have an apartment, um, you're 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 boring money from people because you're just trying to feed your habit you're just going from one chaotic situation to another and i think i think that that's when the realization of oh my god um this is who i am now and then you go oh but i i have to feed my habit so what do i need to do next and i think that that's that's part of the problem so i wish i could be able to say to people there's this moment that happens and then suddenly you go oh my god um in my circumstance it wasn't it was once you're, you know, it's like climbing up a mountain and then looking down and going, oh, my God, I'm scared of heights, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and you finally realize where you are. I think that's, that's almost 
what happened. So. so now here you are, mayor of a large Ontario city. I want you to put your uh, political hat on right now. What are you doing about this? Well, so I can say with confidence that um, even as uh, a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, um, that I have a role and responsibility, not only with my personal experiences, but also uh, governing, um, that I have an insight that maybe others don't. So one is advocating and educating. That's a big part of what I've tried to do right from day one, be innovative in regards to how we address the issue. I remember when I got elected in 2018 as the mayor of the great city of Oshawa, one of the first things I did is I brought 50 faith communities together to talk about what addiction looked like and what it was, because there's there's some in the faith community that believe that if you just pray about it, um, it'll, it'll just all fix itself. And the reality being is prayer is important, but professional um, intervention and support is really necessary. So one of the biggest things I did is spend time with faith leaders and then going to churches to talk about my journey but also talk about the journey that we were seeing um, um, in our own community. Now, in 2018, things changed dramatically in March and April of 2020 when the pandemic hit and we saw an escalation. And, you know, in 2018, I brought forward a concept, a regional council, because I'm lower tier, not upper tier. So health, social service, policing and housing is not us. It's, it's the region. We brought um, a concept that was fought against. Uh, but my colleagues did support it called the PCOP program, which was, is called the Primary Care Outreach Program, where I have a paramedic and a social worker that work together out on the streets as an outreach team. So we brought that, and I advocated for that in 2017-18, and we were the first to be able to bring that forward. So my experience said, this is something that we can we can actually start building relationships and trust with people. And so I've tried to look at it as innovative. So you know, Oshawa, we were the first for that. We were the first with the On Point program in the partnership with the John Howard Society. We were the first with the hub model where it had our social services, our healthcare uh, providers, our OW workers, all of that come together. Um, we were the first to be able to start a program called the Welcoming Streets program. We were the first with the micro project in the city of Oshawa. And you know, part of that is uh, is our initiatives. We were the first with call what was called OUR, which is Oshawa's unsheltered population, and we utilize funds to be able to put bathrooms in and showers. And um, we really um, did some unique things. We brought together because we didn't have outreach workers, and the region didn't have outreach workers. We um, uh, hired level four security officers along with our bylaw officers that were specially trained in de-escalation. Um, in medical training uh, to work from seven at night till seven in the morning about identifying where these individuals were and connecting them with the services and act as outreach, hands off, not hands on. And so we were the first to be able to do that. So we've done a lot of innovative things because of my experiences. The, well, I guess one of the biggest roles that I've played on top of that is really being able to advocate and educate not only my colleagues at the region, but also to advocate up and have a, a good relationship with Minister Tobolo, uh, have great relationships with the Premier, and make sure that I'm advocating upward. I've been able to, you'll laugh at this because of your long tenure as, as in the media, is when I was elected mayor, you might remember that the headline read, homeless man becomes mayor. And I had to say, everybody, you understand, right, that I wasn't homeless at the time, right? Uh, but it makes a great headline. 
And matter of fact, you know, just recently I was written uh, written uh, in the New York Times. There was two stories about me in the New York Times. It gave me an opportunity to highlight what addiction and mental health was looking, what homelessness looked like, and what I was trying to do as an elected official. So I've been put in a very unique position to be able to kind of bring some of those experiences forward. Have I been successful? Um, we still have too many people on the streets and too many people that are addicted to drugs and too many people dying and too many people that are unsheltered. So we have not succeeded as of yet, but I am continuing to look at innovative ways of being able to address it. And, you know, I'm a great believer that I do not want people sleeping in tents. I want us to have them in proper shelters with proper support around them so that we can actually care for them. I want to make sure that we do everything we can to be able to save the lives of those individuals dealing with the worst health crisis and drug crisis, mental health crisis this country has ever seen, in my opinion. And I'm frustrated with the federal government because, in my opinion, the prime minister, Mr. Poliev, and Mr. Singh need to get in a room, sit down, and not just allocate dollars in regards to saying, oh, we're putting money into housing, we're putting, they need to sit down and talk about strategically, how are we going to work together as, as uh, elected officials to be able to work with our municipalities and our provinces to truly put a strategic plan together to address this issue strategically, and not this kind of shotgun approach that we're, we're going after. And so I'm I'm frustrated with the federal government. I've been more successful with the, the province of Ontario. But that being said is I continue to have private conversations. As a matter of fact, I'm meeting face-to-face -face with the premier in January, a one-on-one -on -one with him and I to talk about some of the ideas we're bringing forward. Now, I got to tell you, I find it frustrating that uh, if only we would just spend a little more attention and money on mental health care, especially for teens, we could change the world. I think that because of the way that we've been advocating, have we been advocating correctly? And, and you know, I, you know, to the credit of, uh, of Bell uh, and the work that they've done in regards to the Let's Talk program and, and mental health awareness, that's great. Ontario Shores, CAMH, all these great organizations doing wonderful work. But here's where I'm going with it is, yes, we need to do that. But he, let's make, you know, there's one thing politicians really understand is economics. And what we need to do is I continue to make the economic argument that this doesn't make sense. We are spending hundreds of millions of dollars with not getting the type of successes that we should expect. So let's be strategic about what we're doing and say to ourselves, is what we're doing today actually being able to make the difference that is necessary? And in my opinion, no, it's not. So why don't we sit down and say, okay, so what do we need to do to change this equation? I think that, you know, the public awareness component that both um, Ontario Shores has done, CAMH has done, Bell Let's Talk, has been wonderful in regards to the conversation. But now we need to be able to make sure that we not only carry on the conversation, but we make sure that the proper resources are in the proper places at the right time. Ontario Shores has talked about this program called Empath. And the Empath program actually gets people into the right care at the right moment. Right at this particular time across this province, we are sending individuals that are, uh, uh, that are dealing with severe addiction or mental health to a Schedule One hospital that does not have the expertise in mental health or an addiction. And they are a Schedule One hospital. So what it's doing is these individuals are finding themselves in emergency rooms uh, that are being backed up, overburdened. Um, our police and EMS workers are, are 
being uh, held there for longer periods of time. People are not getting the treatment that's necessary because we don't have the resources there. Why not set up, and this MPATH program is a prime example. Individual comes in, it's a different environment. It's got uh, the staff that are properly trained. The beds are properly ready. Those individuals can be seen within a 20 minute period. It's a proven model that can actually work. That's a step in the right direction. We also have to have a conversation about what do we do in regards to people that are incarcerated and how are we making sure that they're supported through this? What are we doing in regards to people that are leaving sobriety, um, sober houses or, or treatment centers and how are we supporting them after? You know, we, we have this belief that as long as you're there for 28 days and then we go, okay, you're done. That's the end of it. If it's somebody that's been incarcerated for two years that we, we let them back into society and then we're surprised when they come back through the door again because we didn't we didn't uh, set them up for success. We need to look at the supportive housing component and the necessary uh, um, elements that are there. That's a good financial, strategic, uh, economic uh, plan that it can actually work. We need to have these conversations. That's why I'm saying strategically we have to we have to do this correctly. Um, and I'm convinced that we have enough money. I think we have enough resources. Now what we need to say to people is, why isn't it that, in my opinion, that this is the worst health crisis this country has ever faced? Increased um, mental health uh, crisis on a daily basis, over 12 suicides per day that families are dealing with, over 24 individuals across this country are going to die from opiate poisoning today and every single day. Matter of fact, in the United States, uh, opiate-related deaths outpaced for the first time uh, homicides by guns in the United States, over 109,000 people. We need to get serious about this. And we have to understand that there is that this has got to be strategic. There's no fast way out of it. And all of us play a role in regards to it. And we have to be able to say, are what we're doing today, is it are we are we doing the right things right now? And my belief is we're not doing the right things right at this particular time. We need to be uh, coordinated in regards to our services, make sure the empath programs put in place, make sure we've got supportive housing on the other side, and make sure we understand we're going to have to walk with people up to 24 months to be able to make sure that they're, they're successful. It doesn't go away in 28 days. And the return on investment? Well, Kevin, I can tell you that every overdose call that we do is $4,000. And do you know how many overdose calls the city of Oshawa has dealt with so far this year? 440. So don't you think, and, and in many circumstances, those are individuals, in some circumstances, they're the same individuals three or four times a month. So are we actually living up to the oath of our office if we're dealing with the same individual four times and we continue to not provide the type of services that are necessary for that individual? And we're, that's, that's, we're just talking about the addiction and opiate crisis. We also have to understand that many individuals that are suffering with addiction um, have severe mental health issues that they're dealing with also. On our streets, I have never seen the level of schizophrenia that I've seen on our streets. And matter of fact, when you talk to colleagues across the province, they're seeing more and more individuals that are suffering with severe mental health back out on the streets again. And I think what's happening is... Um, that is complicating the issue even more so because these poor souls um, are just so um, so broken um, that they need specialized care. You, you can't you can't put a bandaid on this. These are severe severe 
um, health issues that they have to be dealt with, and they have to be dealt with in the best possible way. Okay, I'm going to do some quick math here. Each call, 4000 bucks. How many calls? So far, well, so many uh, calls. Uh, we've had 440 this year so far. 440. So we're talking about more than a million and a half dollars. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? Another thing, Kevin, is, is and I know that people will go, oh, but mathematically, if you start looking at even the guaranteed income uh, idea about individuals that can actually be supported properly with housing and stuff like that, it's $67 a day. 67 bucks a day. I can guarantee you that that's a better investment um, than $4,000 for a call. And here's the thing about the guaranteed income, by the way. And I know this goes to addiction and mental health and, and homelessness and housing. But here's the thing. Is if you guarantee individuals that are economically challenged with a guaranteed income, either through um a benefit program and the opportunity to work where benefits aren't taken away so that they can make at least $3,000 a month. They don't go to Florida. They don't go to Cancun. They spend that money within a five kilometer radius. So it's good for the local economy. So we have people that are less dependent upon hospitals and emergency rooms. We have people that are actually with shelter. We have people that actually are eating better. And we actually have people that are spending money within the local economy and therefore making our whole community a lot uh, safer and healthier. And we can actually do this if if we're brave enough to take those steps that may politically not be one of those things that people stand up and say, way to go. But I think what we have to do is make the argument about why it makes sense. Amazing. Well put. I'm going to give you the last few moments here to talk to that person out there who is facing or already faces a life of addiction. If they were sitting in your office right now, what would you say to them? Well, I've had lots of individuals come into my office that are people that are struggling with mental health addiction or or just life issues. And they've reached out to me and I try and take that moment to be able to to, um, use my experiences to be able to speak to them. Um, One of the things that I say publicly all the time, that recovery, redemption, and forgiveness are always available. And the reality being is that I'm a great believer that all of us are gifted, talented individuals that are being created at this specific moment because of the reason that we've been gifted um, in certain ways to be able to contribute in whatever ways. Some of us will end up being bus drivers. Some of us will become television hosts, some of us will become mayors, some of us may become teachers. Um, The reality being is, is what I can say with true honesty, uh, that being outside of addiction and living life without the chaos is a lot better than I ever thought. And what you, what I always say to people is the same thing is, you know, we carry a lot of guilt. We carry a lot of shame because of um, the people that we've heard. But I always say to people that you know that all they want is to love you unconditionally and see you get better. And forgiveness is available. And um, that to me is a starting point. And the reality being, as I, I say to people, as dark as your days have been and as many experiences that you've had, know that you've got a gift to be able to help others. And the reality being is, is that, you know, again, as I go back to, do you believe that you're being punished or do you believe you're being prepared? Because if you look at the strength that you have 
right now, the strength that you have, the dark days, the things you've come through, the way you've had to innovate, the things that you had to do to be able to survive, right? Don't you think that you've been prepared for something better? And to me, you know, it takes a great deal of strength to deal with either a mental health issue or an addiction issue on a daily basis. But the biggest thing that I learned out of out of recovery was was that forgiveness was possible. And for me, that really took a huge amount of weight off my shoulders when I when I finally realized it. And by the way, it took about three years before my parents truly uh, could see that I had changed, that I was a different person. And so don't be in a rush. You have to give people the breathing space to be able to accept this uh, change in you. And um, I think that, you know, one of the greatest things that I've I've received is forgiveness. And um, Kevin, to be absolutely honest, I am the most blessed individual, even through the darkest uh, periods of time that I've been through my life. Um, and I'm so lucky that so many people have forgiven me and given me the opportunity of redemption and given me the opportunity to be able to recover. And uh, without their generosity, um, I don't know. I don't know if I'd be here, but I'm so grateful um, that that was available to me. And I know it's available to everybody. So I hope that helps. Oh, I know it will. I'm a true believer as well that every single one of us has a gift, a reason for being here. Me too. Me too. And I know that uh, it's going to help so many people that you found your reason. I appreciate the time spending with you today, Kevin. And by the way, thank you for your, uh, what you had contributed to our province and to many lives uh, on a daily basis in your previous prof profession. Um, many of us uh, enjoyed and were in started our day in a positive way because of you. And I love that the work you're doing today, it's gonna to make a huge difference. So I just wish you and your family uh, the very best as your journey continues. Thank you and same to you, sir. Thank you for this. Oshawa, Ontario Mayor Dan Carter. We have an entire site dedicated to helping you understand and break from addiction. Go to ontarioshores.ca slash info for more information, resources, and thoughts. Next time, we talk to another politician, another politician who not only talks the talk, but has walked the walk. Ontario's mental health minister, Michael Tibolo, spent years helping treat addicts. His insights on the topic were quite interesting. Until then, I'm Kevin Frankish from Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Mental Health Podcast. If you have any thoughts about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at thementalhealthpodcast at ontarioshores.ca. Please don't be alone. Reach out for professional help. For more resources and advice, check out our website, ontarioshores.ca. The Mental Health Podcast is a production of Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences. I'm Kevin Frankish. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Oh,